Thanks. Always good to be back at Cornerstone. It's one of my favorite places to be, so it's nice to be with you today. Hey, I don't know if you've come out of your Thanksgiving coma yet, uh, but in case you haven't noticed, it is, uh, it's Christmas. Christmas is here. It didn't just like sneak up, it just arrived. And I, and I know this because it happened to me. I, I woke up the day after Thanksgiving and I put my tree up and all my decorations because that's what we do. Christmas came upon us. You can see it on the stage, you go outside, you can see it. I saw it last night on the bridge and I was coming in, and it's always busy coming into the city on a Saturday night, but it was particularly busy uh, last night, and as I was waiting in line, just with a heart full of praise, I uh, was thinking, man, who are, where are all these people going? I thought they're going into the city because it's Christmas time, and they're coming in, and there's lights, and it's fun, and they want to celebrate. I'm not trying to be Scrooge because I really love the Christmas season. I, I, I love everything about it. I like the entire package of Christmas. I was trying to think about what it was about Christmas that I particularly really loved. And I think I love Christmas time because I'm very drawn to the feeling of anticipation. I love uh, the feeling of anticipating something, wondering uh, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, what's around the corner. It's one of the reasons why I love reading like mystery novels or I like seeing certain types of movie because I'm drawn in and I'm so in the moment and I can't wait to see what happens next. And I think uh, Christmas is a lot like that. There's a lot of things that we anticipate around Christmas time. I was trying to think of some of the things that, that we might be anticipating. And maybe, for example, you might be anticipating that at Christmas time you see amazing uh, lights and trees, you know, and they're, just, they're beautiful and they're sparkly and just really cool to look at. Uh, if lights and trees aren't your thing, you might uh, be anticipating this Christmas traveling. Now, traveling, anticipation may be more of a dread, really, than an excitement, particularly around the holidays. But whatever the case is, oftentimes we think about uh, holiday time, Christmas time, we think about travel time. Uh, some of us think about how fun it is at Christmas to gather with people and go caroling. You know, we like to sing. That, that's not my thing because uh, my singing is not a blessing to others. It, it's a detriment, really. So I'm happy to send others out to do the singing. I'll stand on the sidelines and cheer them on. But maybe you love to sing and you think it's going to be fun. We're going to get group people out. We're going to go caroling or we're going to go to some sort of a Christmas presentation and listen to singing and it's going to be awesome. So you might be anticipating that. While I'm not a singer, I am an eater, and so I love food at Christmas time. And I particularly like a certain type of food, which is depicted on the screen, which is sweets. I love sweets. I love sweets any time of the year for any meal and in between snacks. But I love Christmas because they're just kind of creative and they're different, and people feel compelled to give them to you for free. And I really like that because, like, you know how the government has that food pyramid? So my pyramid is like chocolate, cookies, sweets, pie. I don't, I don't have that, like, normal pyramid. Mine is just about the sugar pyramid. Uh, now, starting January 1, that's going to have to change. But between now and then, I'm embracing it. Bring it on. <laughs> now, maybe uh, you're anticipating, uh, maybe one of the things you've been anticipating, in fact, maybe one of the things they've already have anticipated and fulfilled is shopping. And you were out on Black Friday, 
with all of those people. God bless you. But some people, man, this is what they anticipate. They're ready. You know, it's kind of like a game. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to get the best deal. You might be anticipating that. That might be something that when you think about Christmas, you go, oh, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm getting in there and I'm getting that deal. Or you might be like, oh, oh I'm doing it online. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Everybody has a different feeling about it. But for some of us, it's exciting and we're expectant. For me, probably the thing that I like most about Christmas is that I get to be with family and friends. So uh, this is actually my family. It's not like a made-up family that I got off the internet. Uh, I don't actually kiss strange men and post it. Uh, so that's my family, and I love being with my little nuclear family, and we have our own little Christmas tradition. I, I love being with my extended family. Uh, and it's a time when, you know, you're intentional about getting together with people that, that you love. And whether it's family or friends, it's something I really look forward to. And kind of alongside of that, I always look forward to watching children at Christmas. My, my children are teenagers now, so they're not nearly as excited about Christmas as little ones are. But when you see Christmas through the eyes of little ones, it's just, it's magical. Um, I was in uh, Target the other day, and a mom was pushing her little daughter in the car. I don't know, probably a daughter, probably about 15 months old. And the, the lights on, Christ, you know, the Christmas trees were lined up with lights on them, and you could just watch her tracking. And her eyes just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and her smile got wider and wider. And I was like, oh, my gosh, the wonderment of Christmas that comes to us through um, the eyes of children. I anticipate that every year. I love that. It kind of brings back that sense of... Uh, of innocence to me. Well, no matter what sort of things you might be anticipating at Christmas time, as followers of Jesus, the thing that we anticipate the most, the thing that has the most significance for us, is we anticipate the birth of Christ. This is one of the high moments in our relationship with God, is the birth of his son. And we anticipate that um, every year. This morning, I want to talk about that Christmas anticipation. And I, I want to do that through a text in the Gospel of Luke. If you have your handout, go ahead and pull it out. We've got it in there for you. And you can see uh, through this little scripture verses in Luke 2, sort of a different, I want to look at it with a little bit of a different lens this morning um, when we talk about uh, what is it we're anticipating at Christmas time. So let me go ahead and read this to you. Uh, starting at verse 25, a man named Simeon was in Jerusalem, and he was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. Uh, he said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word, because my eyes have seen your salvation. You prepared the salvation in the presence of all peoples. It is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This boy is assigned to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that generates opposition, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword 
will pierce your innermost being too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who belonged to the tribe of Asher. She was very old. After she married, she lived with her husband for seven years. She was now an 84-year-old widow. She never left the temple area, but worshiped God with fasting and prayer night and day. She approached that very moment and began to praise God and to speak about Jesus to everyone who was looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Luke 2 um, tells us a lot of things, but it talks to us, I think, about Christmas anticipation in a unique way. Uh, what does it tell us about what we're anticipating at Christmas? I think the first thing Luke 2 tells us is we're anticipating a celebration. We anticipate a celebration. And there's lots of different kinds of celebrations out there during the Christmas holidays. You know, you think about maybe a work celebrations. You have parties at work, which can either be like super fun or really awkward, depending on who you work with or where you work. It's kind of a toss up. Uh, you can have family celebrations. In my case, uh, I love those family celebrations, but maybe in some of your cases, family and celebration don't quite go together. You're thinking at Christmas time, I just have to get through it and I will celebrate then, after. <laughs> Family can, can be that way. Uh, there's lots of ways we can celebrate Christmas, but for us uh, today, I wanna talk about a different kind of celebration than the ones we typically think of. Because what we're celebrating is so much greater and deeper than uh, a simple thing. What we're celebrating is the fulfillment of a promise. We're celebrating the fulfillment of a promise. Now, if you look at this text in Luke, um, you could kind of gloss over it, really, because right before verse 25, we have this nice kind of long excursus about the birth of Jesus, and it's, a, it's like a pageant. You know, it's just amazing things, and there's shepherds out in the field, and all of a sudden, angels show up, and they're like, what? Which is why I do not go caroling. And uh, it's a big production, right? And they run, so let's go. They run to the manger. They see Jesus. It's a big story. And it would be easy to be like, okay, I get it. Jesus is born. Let's move on. Um, and right after that, you come into this little section in Luke 2 at verse 25 that seems kind of ordinary, uh, Mary and Joseph bring Jesus up to the temple. According to Jewish law, there were certain things they, they needed to do according to their faith tradition. And so they are, they're doing it. It's not like super exciting or the kind of thing where you're like, oh, I just can't take my eyes off the page. But it is so significant to us. It's equally significant to us as to what comes before or what comes after because Luke 2 links us. This, this passage links us to a past and a future. See, the, the birth of Jesus doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's not like, hey, that's cool. A little boy is born and they take him to the temple. The birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of a promise. The Jewish people had been promised by God that the Messiah would come. And if you know anything about the history of the Jewish people, they're currently they're in, they're in an oppressive state in, when we come into this story. Um, they're under Roman rule. They're out of their land. Uh, life is difficult. It is not what they thought it would be. And God has said to them, there will come a time when the Messiah will come and will restore 
things. And in their mind's eye, they have been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to come and restore things. And in Luke 2, we see that that promise is fulfilled. How does God fulfill this promise of, of restoring and this promise of saving? He fulfills it because he is God with us. See, what's unique in, in the story of Jesus is that God is so invested and so incredibly in love with us that he says, I, I'm going to just join in. Um, I'm going to come in and I'm going to live life with the people that I created and that I love. And I'm going to uh, understand how they feel and I'm going to see what they do. I'm going to live like the way they live. I'm going to save them by becoming one of them. God is so committed to us and committed to fulfilling his promise that he actually shows up in person and makes good on what he has said. Uh, for Simeon and Anna, who are just these kind of obscure characters in the story, this is like a, um, an ultimate moment for them because they are now seeing God. They are seeing the salvation, the promise that they've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. They're seeing it made good on. And what that tells us is this, that as we anticipate Christmas and we celebrate it, we remember that God keeps his promises. When I was uh, pregnant with our son Trent, who is now 16 years old and this tall, uh, we were out shopping for stuff for his nursery. And uh, I, we were in a store and, you know, I just was kind of wandering around, and I wasn't actually, to be honest, I wasn't really into it because I just felt fat, and I just wanted to be done, and, but we had to decorate, and so my husband and I went out, and I saw this painting. Now, um, let me just be honest with you. It was, it was ugly. It was an ugly painting. I mean, by all standards, unattractive painting. It was sort of in a corner, I'm sure not by accident. Uh, but I was drawn to this painting. I kept going back to this painting. Dan, my husband, was wandering around, and I kept going back to the painting. And this is what I kept thinking. God, that's such an ugly painting. <laughs> and I kept going back. So finally, I picked the painting up. And for whatever reason, I take it over to Dan, and I said, you know what? We need to get this painting for the baby's room. <laughs> and Dan, who is far more aesthetically uh, oriented than I am and, and much better at this than I am, looked at me, and he was like, are you, are you kidding? And I said, no, I'm, I'm not kidding, because look at the painting. And he, he looks at the painting. It's a painting of Noah's Ark. It's a bad painting of Noah's Ark. It's an ugly painting of Noah's Ark. But there's a phrase at the bottom of the painting. And this is what kept drawing me back. And I said, look at the bottom of the painting. And at the bottom of the painting, the phrase says this, God keeps his promises. Now, for us, that phrase, God keeps his promises, particularly around the birth of our son, was a big deal for us. Because some of you will remember or know that uh, Dan and I had a long journey and a hard journey to have children. Um, our first pregnancy we lost in the second trimester. It was hard. It was painful. It was horrible. Um, then we went through infertility for years. Uh, then God gave us our daughter. We adopted our daughter, and it was so amazing. On the very same day that we found out our adoption was final, I found out I was pregnant. Oh, yes, God keeps his promises. <laughs> it's a little overwhelming, I'm not going to lie. But there was great celebrating about that. We were like, whoo, this is awesome. God has kept his promises, and we celebrated. And it was amazing. And little did we know that the fulfillment of that promise 
would land us two years later with a severely autistic son. Sometimes promises aren't fulfilled in the way we expect them to be. Sometimes we think a promise will be fulfilled one way, and it is. And sometimes we think a promise will be fulfilled one way, and it isn't. But that doesn't mean we don't have something to celebrate about a promise being fulfilled. Because the promise that God gives us in the birth of Jesus is that he's with us. He is with us. And we've had a long and arduous journey with our son. He has been amazing and incredible and difficult and stressful. And there are days when I have been so to the edge, I did not think I would be able to return. But there isn't a day when I could tell you that I walked away from that day saying God didn't keep his promise. Because God has always shown up for us. Sometimes the 11th hour, 59th minute. <laughs> In my mind. But he's always shown up. See, the fulfillment of a promise isn't about the promise being fulfilled the way we think it should be fulfilled. The fulfillment of the promise is about God saying, no matter what happens in life, I am with you. you know, some of you are here today and you're like, I, we are good. Well, I, we are like Simeon and Anna, man. We are excited and we can do the like celebration dance and praise because things are moving in a trajectory that's right and we're anticipating Christmas and it's exciting. And some of you are here today and you're like, if this is the fulfillment of a promise, I would rather not have one. The reality of our life circumstances doesn't change the reality of who Jesus is. In fact, for, for us, I think the reality of our life circumstances makes the reality of who Jesus is so much more powerful. Because no matter where we are, Jesus is in the middle of it. That's what Christ being born does for us. That's what a fulfillment of a promise does. That's what God with us says. I'm going to come right smack dab into the middle of it. And I'm going to live in it. And I'm going to walk through it with you. When we anticipate Christmas, we anticipate a celebration. Even when things aren't what we expect. It's funny, for the Jewish people who had been waiting, like Simeon and Anna, for the Messiah to come, their expectation level was different. They thought that when the Messiah would come and restore them, that it would be the kind of, you know, kicking the behind, taking names Messiah. They thought that Messiah was going to come in and say to the Romans, I got news for you, you're out. They thought it was going to be the super stud riding in on a white horse, you know, sword in hand Messiah. They thought the Messiah would have a warrior's cry. They did not expect the Messiah, warrior cry, to come out of the mouth of a baby. When expectations don't get met, we can walk away or we can look Above and say, God, while my expectation was one thing, your reality is another. You are with us. The way you choose to manifest yourself in my life and the way God chooses to manifest himself in your life is that he's present there. He's present there. And that is a gift worth celebrating. But we don't just anticipate celebration. We anticipate also salvation. 
I mean, this is what the whole thing of the birth of Jesus is about. Uh, we, the world is, is saved. God has made a decision to restore the stuff that's broken and, and, and the mishap and to say, I'm committed to making that relationship that I established with you right. And so I'm sending my son. I'm sending myself. I'm coming in and I'm going to make it right. I'm here to restore the relationship that I have with you. And I'm here to restore the relationship that you have with each other because a fractured relationship with God means that our relationships with each other is fractured. We, we anticipate salvation because you know what? The, the world needs saving. It doesn't take a lot of uh, time or effort to figure out that the world is a broken place, does it? Pick up your smartphone, preferably not right now, and look at the news on it. And you'll see brokenness. Uh, I live in Folsom, outside of Sacramento. It's a suburb. And one of the myths of suburbia is that you are always protected from the things in life that are ugly. We live in a bubble that we think keeps us safe from bad things. Last week, a 12-year-old boy uh, hung himself to one of our middle schools. And uh, he hung himself because he was hopeless and he was in despair and he could not see a way out of brokenness in his own life and brokenness in the lives of kids around him that was being inflicted upon him. And it burst our suburban bubble. And it was awful. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it was like for his family. I know what it felt like to me as a mom to think about my children. I know what it felt like to me as a person, mother or not, to think about the fact that there are things that we do to each other in life that are ugly and mean-spirited and can sap hope out of our reality I know that there's a school in the middle of Folsom that's worked really hard to create an environment where everyone is to be accepted and is realizing that in the real world, not everyone is accepted. The world is broken. And we need a savior, not just a savior who waves a magic wand on it, but a savior who enters into it, who, who understands it, who knows what it's like to be broken. Because that's the kind of God that we have. We experience this sense of salvation on a grand scale. The birth of Jesus is God's way of saying, I'm, I'm here. I am in the business of saving the things that are lost. I'm in the business of taking stuff that's messy and broken and fractured and ugly. And I'm going to put it together again. Simeon has this really amazing moment in this text. And it's just this little phrase where he, he has Jesus in his arms and he says, I have seen your salvation. So the name Jesus, Yeshua, means salvation. So Simeon's literally seeing in his hand a baby named Salvation. He's holding it probably one-handed because you know how babies are. They're tiny. I've seen your salvation and I have seen God your salvation, and he is here. I've seen it on a grand scale, but I'm holding salvation in my hands. It's here. It's a really, really, I think, poignant and beautiful moment in this story. He looks upon Jesus and he says, this is the one who will restore things that aren't right. This is the one who will redeem things. This is the one who will take the stuff in life that's ugly and bad and, and we can't even begin to explain and will somehow 
work through it with us to take it through the process of making it something worthwhile. It doesn't take away from the reality of the pain. I would never be one to say that. But what it does do is it takes us to the process of taking something that once held nothing but sorrow and bring it into a place that can also hold joy. He restores and redeems us. God takes what's wrong and he makes it right. He takes the things that feel impossible and he flows possibility through them. He takes the spaces and places in people's lives where we think there is no hope and he launches hope into the picture. We anticipate salvation on a grand, on a broad scale. But we also can anticipate salvation on a, on a more narrow scale. And when I say a narrow scale, really what I mean is on a personal level, day in and day out, we get a chance to experience God's salvation. We get the opportunity to see how this Jesus, this fulfillment of a promise, this God with us, not only saves the entire world, but saves us, me, day in and day out. I experience restoration and Redemption every day. So along with uh, our son, Trent, 16, I, we have Maggie, our adopted daughter, who's 17. And we're right in the thick of that stage of life that uh, is called the teen years of parenting. And, you know, and, and, and I've been a teenager, so I know what I was like as a teenager, which I'm pretty certain almost killed my parents. And I'm now a parent, and I have a teenager, and she's doing her very best to kill me. I mean, we're just doing that thing. You know, she's 17 years old and she's high spirited and she wants her independence and that's all absolutely normal and right. And I'm 53 and I'm in the middle of my own journey and I'm like, you are just rocking my boat, baby. Stop it. I often will say, you know, parenting is so hard. And, and the other day I had this little epiphany where I thought, and being a teenager is really hard. Like I had forgotten. You know, Maggie, Maggie looks at me probably and goes, you are rocking my boat. Get out. <laughs> it's sort of like the first time you realize that not everyone in the world likes you. Like, you know you don't like people, but you're like, really? They don't like me? Wait, how's that work? So that was a little epiphany I, I had. Well, we had a blowout, blowout in our house the other day. And it was just the two of us. And, you know, I should know better than, you know, at 5.30 in the evening to be having a conversation that has any potential of blowing up. But for whatever reason in that moment, I wasn't thinking about that. And we got into it. And we think it was about something about homework and responsibility and all the kinds of things that parents say to you. And I was just right there in the middle of it. And we both lost it. I mean, it was not pretty. There was a lot of yelling. That was mostly me. <laughs> There was a lot of crying. That was mostly Maggie. Here's the thing. I, I feel like, I don't know how it happens that I went from being 53 to 17 in about 1.5 seconds. Like, I, I just went from being supposedly the mature adult in the picture to being the adolescent teen. And I didn't even know it had happened, but all of a sudden, man, the claws were out and I was on it. And it was not a nice part of me that came out. I had a tantrum. 
of sorts. I was like marching around the house and I was like, I can't believe this happened. You know, if you're a parent, all the things you say, I'll never say that if I'm a parent. Oh, I was just embracing it. Bring it. She's crying. I'm getting mad because she's crying. I mean, it was just awful. So in our house, when this gets to that escalating level, corners, everyone goes to their corners, which looks like this. She goes up the stairs, the door slams, she goes in. I go out to the garage usually, that door can't slam, but if it could, it would have, and we try and settle down. Now here's the thing, I'm in the garage and I'm thinking about what just happened, and I gotta tell you, I felt so ashamed, because that's not who I wanna be. Uh, I do not wanna be that parent. I do not want to be the parent who's like rah, rah, screaming and yelling and scaring their child to the point of tears. I mean, it was, it was an awful moment for me. I'm not going to lie. And as I thought about it, and I thought it's easy for me in those moments to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm such a bad parent. I'm an awful parent. I can go right down that, you know, just down that road of shame. And God kind of grabbed me by the nape of the neck and pulled me back and said, that was a very unfortunate incident. But there's an opportunity for you here. There's an opportunity for salvation here. There's an opportunity for restoration and redemption here. And I thought, this is the moment in time where I could actually maybe act like I'm following Jesus, as opposed to a few moments before that, where that seemed to get lost in the shuffle. So I kind of gathered myself up to go upstairs to talk to my daughter. Here's something, since I'm telling you awful things about me. Uh, here's another awful thing. I hate to be wrong. I hate to be wrong. I mean, I can't, I know that no one likes to be wrong, but I think probably on the scale, I just like, I'm like on a hundred of hating to be wrong. And I really don't like to have to be the first one to apologize. It's not a nice quality. I'm not like going, woohoo, aren't I neat? I don't like it about myself. I've worked hard to understand why that's there. And that doesn't really matter. The reality is it's just really hard for me. But just because something's really hard for me doesn't mean I have to opt out and wait for the 17-year-old to act like the adult and come and apologize. I could actually be the adult and go and apologize. So, you know, sometimes when you get that information and you know that's true, you just have to go and, you know, you just got to bite your lip and go upstairs and go, okay, here we go. So I knocked on her door and I opened it and I said, Maggie? I go, well, I stopped because I looked at her. She's laying on the bed, and she's like sprawled out. Her makeup's all smeared. I swear she looked like she was in a horror movie. Um, <laughs> and I took pause, and I said, Maggie, I said, you know what? I just came up here to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was so wrong. The way I spoke to you was not OK. Yelling at you is not the way to solve problems. And I, I don't know exactly what happened in the moment, and it doesn't really matter because you don't deserve to be treated that way, and I hope you'll forgive me. And she looked at me, and um, you know, in that moment, I realized, just walk away, because the apology had been given, and I didn't want to ruin it by going into my lecture mode after it. So I walked away. Like an hour later, you know, she comes downstairs, she walks over to me, she goes, Mom? It's good. We're good. You're good. <laughs> like, thanks. Right there, man. Right in the middle of it all. That's salvation. 
That's salvation. That's, that's restoration. That's redemption. That's, that's God taking something that was just ugly and blah, broken and fractured, and God just taking it and going, I'm going to just put my hands on it, and I'm going to turn it into something that's beautiful, because you're going to get to see forgiveness. You're going to experience it. You're going to watch your relationship get restored, and you're going to get to model for your daughter what humility looks like, whether you like it or not. It was a beautiful moment for me. That's what it looks like. That's what salvation looks like. God takes something that no one would ever think is beautiful, like an ugly Noah's Ark painting, and he turns it into a masterpiece. We anticipate salvation, not just on the global scale, but also in our lives, day in and day out. Now, I, I, I know this. I know that we're all in different places today. I know that some of us feel very hopeful coming into Christmas, and some of us are anticipating wonderful things, and some of us are kind of in the middle, and some of us are at the tail end of that, and we're not even sure we want to hear about anticipation. I know that that's true because that's what life is like. But here's something else I know is true. Hope is bigger than our desperation when it's anchored in Jesus. Love is always stronger than death. And the things that break us when they go through the hands of God become the things that are glorious. I know it because God tells us that, and I know it because I've lived it. I wonder if this Christmas, as you head in and you start your seasonal anticipation, uh, maybe this Christmas the anticipatory uh, leanings could be anticipation of hope, of celebration, of restoration, that no matter where we are, there is something greater and grander happening here, uh, not just to the world, but to us, that a promise has been fulfilled, that second chances happen, that God is with us. That's what I'm anticipating this Christmas. And I trust and hope and pray that that is the anticipation that we all grab hold of. Hope is stronger. Hope is greater. Jesus is coming. Celebration is here, and salvation is before us. In a minute, the band's going to come up and uh, finish us out, the service with the song, but before that, we're going to have a time of giving. So would you bow with me in prayer? God, we all come here today in different spaces and places. You know what those places are. You know what our celebration quotient is, you know, where we feel excited and anticipatory and where we feel desperate. And you are with us in all those places, God. We celebrate your presence, that you fulfill the promise by being in it with us and that you redeem and restore our lives. You redeem and restore the world. You take that which by all of our vision, all of our thought could be nothing but bad, and you take it and you turn it into something glorious and greater. And that's kind of what you do in a most mysterious and miraculous way. That's what you do by bringing us a savior who lays in a manger. That's what you do by bringing us a warrior whose cry is that of a baby.